Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, verses 34 through 38. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Father, some of the greatest words in all of Scripture are here in this little segment. Unfortunately, sometimes we get so, so familiar with your word, especially those of us who have been reading it over and over again. We fail to see the brilliance, the amazing, the awe that we should approach these words. Help us to imagine what it would be like to be Mary and to have the angel address her and to say the words that we're going to read in the 35th verse to to us and how awe-inspiring, how awesome, and how frightening that would be. I pray that you will truly take us into the text, fill us with your spirit, illuminate us to what we will find here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of the most um, familiar words in Scripture are also the first words of Scripture. You know, the way it starts out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, was hovering over the waters, over the face of the waters. Now, the word that is used for God there is Elohim. And that's a Hebrew word that refers to the creator God, the omnipotent, all-powerful God who creates all that there is, ex nihilo. Uh, That means out of nothing. John puts it this way in his prologue, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the judge of the universe, the maker of the universe. But zeroing in now on his creation on the earth, we are told that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters, over the deep. Now, the world at this time was unordered. It was without form. It was without life. It was without light. It was without beauty. So the Spirit of God, in this hovering that he did, he brought all of that about, light and life and order out of chaos and beauty. Now, for years, I have pointed to that creation story as a beautiful metaphor of the gospel. Because what the Holy Spirit did there, he he did to me 
And I know that he did to many of you. He hovered over me. This morning we're going to look at a different word that's very similar to it. doesn't mean exactly the same thing. But the idea is the same. The overshadowing where the Spirit of God hovers over that which has no form, which has no life, which has no light. And in me, he brought light in my soul where there was once darkness. He brought order where there was once chaos, purpose, and meaning. He brought life where I was spiritually dead. He brought love where all I had known before was enmity with God. He changed me forever. Now, that's a process that we are going to see in a slightly different way this morning as we see what the Holy Spirit of God is going to do to Mary when he overshadows her. But I I want to point out that we actually have a process here that is very similar to what we see in creation and very similar to what actually happened in the hearts of believers as the Holy Spirit overshadows them. Now, with that said, let's jump back into our text because where we left this was with Mary, a young teenage girl standing in front of the angel Gabriel, and she has just heard the most astonishing words. Not only is she told that she's going to have a child, even though she's still a virgin, never has known a man, but that child is not going to just be any child. He's going to be great. He will be the son of the Lord Most High, of El Elyon. He's going to be a king. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule over the house of Jacob, the people of God forever and ever and ever. So you can imagine why. She's stunned. She, she, she is perplexed. She's um, uh, terrified, actually, I think. But nonetheless, what we're going to see this morning is how she responds to the angel. But before we get there, before we get there, I want to take a look at something that I brought to your attention last week. And that is the tension between the the coming of the kingdom that we're seeing here. There's a tension that is actually going to be um, illustrated for us. If you remember, the way that Luke started out this chapter, he was talking to Zechariah. or The angel went and talked to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest, which is, of course, the most exalted, most uh, uh, respected job in all of Israel. And he's standing in Jerusalem on top of Mount Zion in the temple in the holy place, right outside the holy of holies. In other words, you cannot get more connected or more centralized than Zechariah was. Then almost immediately, dramatically, we go from there to the other end of the spectrum, to a no-name town in the middle of nowhere in Galilee, which was Hicksville, a place called Nazareth, and a young girl, most likely a teenager, who had no intrinsic merit of her own. God chose her out of his own grace. And now the angel appears to her and tells her that she's going to have a child too. We notice the tension between those from 
from one end of the spectrum to the other. But then we took Zechariah and just threw him out the window. Because when the angel told Mary, you will, he will be the son of El Elyon, all of a sudden we're not talking about the difference between um, Jerusalem and Nazareth. We're talking about the difference between heaven and Nazareth. We're not talking about the difference between Zechariah and Mary. We're talking about the difference between God and Mary. And that tells us much about the kind of kingdom that is going to come. It is a kingdom where humility reigns. Well, nonetheless, that's, that's where we are. We're going to see, I think, a beautiful visualization of that tension because Luke is all about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. With that said, let's jump into our text, starting with the 34th verse and Mary's response to all of that from the angel. She says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, if if we were reading this all the way through, you, you might notice that that's very similar to the response that Zechariah gave, although there are some, some substantial differences in it. But as far as the form is concerned, Mary is responding almost exactly the way Zechariah did. First, there's a challenge. How will this be? How's this going to happen? <laughs> I don't understand. I've never been with a man. And then that's followed up with that rationale. For I have known no man, is what it says in the literal text. I, I, I haven't had any reason to be pregnant. How's this going to be? Well, if you look back at Zechariah, when he said this, that's back in the 18th verse, we read, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. Notice the same form exactly. A challenge and then a rationale. So some people say, wait a minute, that's not fair. How come Zechariah is getting punished for answering almost exactly the same way that Mary answered? Well, there's a major difference, and we discussed this difference a couple of weeks ago. And the difference is belief. Brothers and sisters, belief is central to what it means to be a Christian. It is central to this kingdom. And so therefore, Zechariah answered in unbelief. He basically said to the angel, I need a sign. I don't believe you. Show me how I'm going to know this. Well, Mary didn't answer that way. She didn't answer with an answer that was unbelieving. She wanted to know how it was going to happen because she lived in a world where virgins don't have babies. So we will see in the 38th verse that she's far from unbelief. She is believing. And so that's the difference between the answer that Mary gave and the answer with Zechariah. In fact, if you think about it, Mary actually has much more reason to not believe than did Zechariah. I mean, it's one thing for God to open the womb of a woman who has been barren all of her life and should be past the age of childbearing. It's one thing. I mean, that's happened on many times, many occasions. We know it happened with Sarah and with Hannah. We know that God has done this before. But to bring life out of a womb that's never known a man, to to bring a child out of the womb of a virgin, that has never happened in the annals of history, and God has never done it in in history since then. But there's another thing, another point. Actually, Calvin brings this out. The angel told her that your son is going to sit on the throne of David. Well, there hadn't been a king on David's throne for centuries. 
The current king is Herod the Great, and he's not even a Jew, much less a descendant of David. So she had many reasons not to believe in the angel, but she simply asked, how is this going to happen? And so the angel's going to tell her. And he's going to tell her in this 35th verse, which, brothers and sisters, is one of the great verses of Scripture. It teaches us so much about our Lord, teaches us so much about the relationship that we have with him, the relationship that he has with the Father. Let's read it together. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. First thing that he says about this is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, we've talked an awful lot about what it means to be holy over the last couple of months. Actually, during the whole period of the, of the holidays, we talked about the holiness of God. And so we know that to be holy means to be set apart. It means, in a, in a human sense, to be sanctified, to be consecrated, to be set aside before God's purpose. In God's, in the sense of God, it means His transcendent. He is set apart. He is greater and far above His creation. But I don't believe that's the way that holy is being referred to here. And, and in fact, I think it, it, it speaks more of the purity and the sinlessness of this child. This child is going to be unique apart from every other child who has ever been born. Because, first of all, just the mechanics, the fact that he's going to be born to a virgin. But secondly, because he is going to be born sinless. And I believe that's what the, the angel is saying when he says that the child is going to be born holy. Now we'll get to that in a moment. But let's talk about the phrase, and he will be, he will be visited, or um, uh, let me find it. He will be, the, that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, the Most High, if you were here last week, you know we talked about that, right? We talked about the fact that the Most High was El Elyon, the God above all other gods, the supreme God. And now we see that the, the power of the Most High is going to be involved here. So we have the Holy Spirit and we have the power of the Most High. Of course, I want to remind you that they're both the same God. But we're going to see all three members of the Godhead referred to here. But we're going to have the power of the Most High that's going to overshadow Mary. And then we're going to see the Holy Spirit of God that is going to descend upon her. Now, even though we're seeing the holiness of the Holy Spirit here, there is something that the Holy Spirit is doing that I want to make sure that we pick out. Because uh, Calvin points this out. He says that the Holy Spirit is the, the power, the essence of God. He is the presence of God. We know that the Holy Spirit was the paraclete, the actual second paraclete, the helper that Jesus sent, the Father sent after Jesus went. So he is the power, the force, and the, and the energy of God here on this earth. But I don't think we're talking about that right now. Because what we're talking about is what we opened up talking about. We're talking about creation. The Holy Spirit is going to descend upon this girl because he's going to create in her a child. He is going to place the child. He is going to make this child in her womb. 
And so the Holy Spirit in this sense is that creative spirit. And as I said earlier, this is why he's going to call the child holy. He will be called holy. Not just because he is set apart, but because of his sinlessness. David said in the 51st Psalm that every, every single one of us sin. There's not a single one of us that does not sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there is a sinlessness that is going to occur in Jesus that has not occurred in any other human being who has ever been born. And all we have to do is to go into Scripture, and that is clearly stated for us, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For it was indeed fitting, the writer of Hebrews says, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Peter put it this way, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this holy child, even though he is set apart, is going to be, he's going to be made. He's going to be created in a sinless state. We'll get to that a little further in a moment. Let's back up and talk about the power of El Elyon and exactly what that power means and how that power is manifest. Now, it says that the power of El Elyon or God Most High would overshadow her. Now, if you were paying attention back when we read the 91st Psalm, that's the word I wanted you to pick out of this text. Overshadow is a very interesting word. And it means different things as we trace it throughout Scripture. And the Old Testament, and when I say the Old Testament, we're talking about a Greek word here, so I'm talking about the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. But the Old Testament, Moses was overwhelmed many times by the overshadowing of the Spirit of God, Exodus 40. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. That word settled is overshadowing. Settled upon it in the glory of the Lord, fill the tabernacle. We sang earlier about the glory of the Lord settling, coming, overshadowing the tabernacle when, the, um, when in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees that great image. So in the one sense, the idea of overshadowed means, it, it, it means the presence of God. But I want to make sure that you know that it's not just a static, lifeless presence because probably the most famous of the, the overshadowings is the transfiguration. And Luke puts it this way. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So we see that overshadowing. And if you want to visualize it as a cloud, that's okay. But we see that overshadowing has a a personality. It has intelligence. It speaks. It's the presence of God enveloping in encompassing, overshadowing people. Sometimes it is protective, and that's what we read in the 91st Psalm. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. 
So we see this word used in a variety of ways, but here, once again, it is used in the context of creation. It is the power of God that is enveloping, encompassing, overshadowing this girl so that in her womb, a holy child will be created. A holy child that it's hidden from us. Actually, Calvin's the one who says that too. He says that if you really want to see this as the metaphor that it is, look at it also as sort of a veil. A veil that covers an amazing thing that God is doing. A veil that hides from human eyes something that even if we were to see it, we still wouldn't be able to understand it. And I'm not just talking about the mechanics of how Mary got pregnant. That, that's, not, that's, that's not the great mystery here. The great mystery is the nature of the child who is being created. Because not only will that, that person, that being, be a fully human being, but he will also be the son of God Most High. He will have the power of that. There's a union. It's called the hypostatic union. And that is something that as much as we talk about it, we can never understand. How is it possible that God became man? How is it possible that the Spirit of God could humiliate himself and take on the attributes of a human being? That's the hypostatic union, and it is the most extraordinary thing that has ever happened in the history of babies for this child to be both God and man. Now, I talked to you earlier about the tension, remember? That there's a tension between heaven and earth as the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. Well, you are visualizing it right here, if you can visualize it in your mind. Now, if you want to see it as a cloud, that's fine. See it as a cloud, because I don't think it was a cloud. I don't think Mary got enveloped by a cloud. But elsewhere, when this word is used, there's a cloud that descends upon people. Imagine the cloud. The cloud is the theophany. It is the presence of God. It settles upon this girl and engulfs her and overshadows her and creates in her womb the God-man. Right then and there. That, brothers and sisters, is the tension of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Now, I'm not going to say that that is when the kingdom of heaven came to earth because I think it's a process. I think it includes the incarnation, the ministry of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, all the way to Pentecost and into the church age. I think that's the coming of the kingdom of heaven. But this is surely the point that we get a beginning because this is the conception of a child who is holy, a child who will be righteous, a child who will never sin, a child who will go into his ministry and never sin once and go to the cross so that we might be declared righteous. He imputes his righteousness to us. The perfect sacrifice on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. That has never happened, but that is the mystery that is going on as the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. Well, finally... The angel says he will be called, you can extend that, he will be called holy, the son of God. Might as well have just said he will be called the son of God. Now that phrase is used many times in scripture. It is used in a variety of ways. 
Sometimes it even talks about human beings. Human beings sometimes are talked about as the sons of God. But here it is being talked about in a very restrictive way. It talks about the relationship within the Godhead between the first member and the second member. It talks about the filial relationship between the Son and the Father. It talks about the, 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 the relationship that will be extended now to the Son who is being created in Mary's womb. But it talks about that relationship, the hypostatic union. What is so amazing about that relationship is that it is both God and man. And Scripture points out both of those. If, if you stick around for the after church, we're actually going to go a little bit deeper into this. And, and there's a formula within the Nicene Creed, the, the Council of Nicaea, that goes like this. He is very God and very man. That means he is truly God and truly man. That means he is 100% God and 100% man. That's the mystery that's going on inside Mary's womb. And it started from conception. And scripture is very clear about that. First of all, that he is very man. That he is indeed a man just like the rest of us. Paul put it this way, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Writer of Hebrews pointed out that he was tempted just like we are, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. God doesn't get tempted, folks. Only a human being is tempted. And so Jesus was fully human, very human. John 1, of course, we talk about that many times. And the word, the logos, that which was the essence and the mind and the wisdom of God became flesh and dwelt among us. What an amazing concept that this child is a man, a human being, but at the same time, he's very God. And once again, Scripture is extremely straightforward about that, doesn't cut any corners. Writer of Hebrews says, you know this, he's the radiance of God's glory, the very imprint of his nature. Paul says in Colossians that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and then again, that verse that we've talked about over and over again from John, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's no question in, in Scripture telling us that Jesus, this child that is being born, was very God, 100% God, truly God. And, and, and it was known by pretty much everybody in those days. The believers knew it, John the Baptist said about Jesus, for in, I'm sorry, it said about Jesus, um, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. For goodness sakes, even the demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God. What have you to do with us from Matthew 8? O Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Isn't that a sad commentary? You read the statistics of the number of confessing evangelicals who say Jesus is not God, that the demons actually have a better understanding of who Christ is than almost half 
of the so-called Christian church these days. But nonetheless, he is very God. He is very man. That's what he means here when he says he will be called the Son of God. Now, let's back up to that. I don't know if you remember. We've already been through that phrase. He will be called. We, we ran into it back when the angel said, and he will be called the son of El Elyon. And, and the same thing applies here. He will be called holy. He will be called the son of God. That doesn't mean that some human being someday is going to make it up and say, mm, he is the son of God. Let's worship him as such. And, and again, I just keep... Falling back on Calvin here, he, he, he makes this point very strongly that he will be called the Son of God because he always has been the Son of God. He's the eternal second member of the Godhead who has always been. And so therefore, when he comes, he will be the Son of God. And what is so amazing is not that the divine nature of Christ will be the Son of God because he has always been the Son of God. He is preexistent. What is so amazing is that this flesh that is beginning to form in the womb of a teenage girl now will be called the Son of God because there is a union between the two of them. Just as an aside, and I kind of mentioned it earlier last week, um, Will asked a question uh, when we were talking about, we had read Psalm 2. And when Psalm 2 says, um, uh, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Well, Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to revisit that in the after church uh, this morning. There's an awful lot of that. And there's a lot of history that goes around how the church actually came to that understanding, clearly stated here in Scripture. But, you know, people are very good at not understanding Scripture. So we'll look at that just a wee bit after um, the, in the after church. But let's go ahead and let's see what the angel continues to say to Mary because he continues. He's actually going to give her a sign and a principle or an example and a principle. And then first the example, we'll see what he says. Look there in the 36th verse. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, the way the angel states that, it kind of sounds to me that Mary didn't know that her relative was pregnant and was going to conceive a son. In fact, if you remember, Elizabeth hid herself for the first five months, and now in the sixth month, she's making it public. So I, I don't think Mary knew that her, her relative was pregnant, but she no doubt knew the situation. She, she knew that Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. And she knew that, that she was old and she was beyond the age of having babies. So what the angel is doing for Mary is saying, hey, listen, you're, we've already done this. A miracle has already occurred. Your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. Isn't that ironic? Don't you love how ironic Scripture is? Zechariah is told he's going to have a son. He doesn't believe the angel, and he says, show me a sign. And the angel says, because of that, you're not going to speak. He's been mute now for six months. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, believes, and he gives her a sign. I think there's a principle in there somewhere. Um, I don't want to be too emphatic about this because people can run away with this, but I think there's a principle. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that there, was a, there were consequences for unbelief talk about it a little bit later. 
Well, I think now we're seeing there are consequences for belief. In other words, God, Christianity is a religion founded upon belief. It is our faith. It is our trust. That means everything. That's how we enter the ranks of Christianity is through our faith. God loves belief. He loves us to believe. He loves obedience. He loves humility. And Mary has exhibited all of those, as we'll see in a moment. So there are consequences for her belief, good consequences But as we will see a little bit later on, there are also negative consequences that people suffer. Well, the angel, um, uh, um, after he he makes that statement about... By the way, something else I'm going to bring out in the after church that I'm not going to really go into here. What what do you think is meant by relative? And how, how can these two women be relatives? Because we already know that Elizabeth... And Zechariah both are from the house of Aaron. Now, we know that Joseph is from the house of David. Many scholars believe in the third chapter genealogy. We'll get there. That Mary is also from the house of David. So if Mary is from the house of David and Elizabeth is from the house of Aaron, how can they be relatives? Well, we'll talk about that in the after church. Uh, It really isn't a difficult um, uh, solution at all. But nonetheless, um, we're going to see the, um, uh, the amazing statement of the, this virgin birth. Look what, is, look what he says next. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God's. I'm going to give you the literal translation of that just because we'll come back to it later. I mean, that's a good translation, but literally what he says is no word shall be impossible with God. Now, he's not talking about your word. He's not talking about the name and claim it, word of faith people. He's talking about God's words. God made the universe with a word. He made all that is with a word. There is power in the word of God, just like there is power in this word of God. And so the angel says, there is no word, there is nothing that is impossible with God. How comforting those words are to us to know that God is El Elyon above all things and there is nothing that he cannot do. But you know something else it does in this passage? One of the beautiful things that you begin to learn uh, when you study scripture as you begin to see how integrated it is. Now, Luke, as we know, is a Gentile. But we also know that he was enthralled with, um, with the Old Testament and with the Hebrew history of redemption. And so here we have a direct line being drawn way back to what is so significant to what is happening now because it takes us right back to Abraham and Sarah. Because something like this was, happened very much with them. The same kind of response. In other words, do you remember the story? You know what happened when um, uh, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham said, oh, I know I'll have a son through my servant Eleazar. And he says, no, you're going to have a son by your 90-year-old wife. And this was the response. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
There's nothing impossible with God, either for Sarah or for Mary. But what that does is it forms a bridge. It forms a direct line between what is happening with Mary and what happened with Sarah. Because that's the time that God made the covenant. That's the man God made the covenant with. That the whole world will be blessed through your offspring. And now we see that blessing coming about in the womb of Mary. Because God is going to fulfill that blessing in the person of Jesus Christ. Beautifully put together in that way. Well, let's turn now to Mary's response because I think that is a vital part of this and especially for us to see. Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. Now, once again, we see the richness of this passage because we're going to get to Hannah's prayer a little bit later on as we get to the Magnificat. But already, there's, there's, we're going back to something that was richly stated in the Old Testament, very similar to this, because Hannah actually puts it this way, let your servant find favor in your eyes. The word that they both use in the Greek version of Old Testament and the New Testament is doule in the Greek. That is the feminine of the more popularly known doulos, which means slave. Now, that would be the proper translation here, is that Mary would say, Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. And, 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 but that doesn't exactly catch it, so that's the reason the editors of our, our Bibles, English, have translated that as servant, but I wish that they had gone a little bit farther. Because at least in our language, in our day, a servant refers to someone who can pick up and go someplace else. A a servant who can say, hey, I'm tired of working for you. I'm going to go work for somebody else because I'm getting better pay down there. And, and, And that's not what we have here. It's more like a slave. So the word bond servant would be better. A bond servant is a slave that is just as bound by his or her master as a slave, but their servitude is voluntary. They're there because they want to. They're there because they love their master and they pledge that they will give up their life, deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him because they are bondservants. That's what Mary says. I am a bondservant of the Lord. And in that, Mary begins to show us her true colors because she is the humble, obedient bondservant of the Lord. That's the way she responds. That's light years different than the way Zechariah responded. Because she is saying, I, on my own volition, out of my own heart, out of my own desire, I trust and believe and follow you wherever you lead me. Humility is a major part of this kingdom, and I told you that at the beginning. In fact, in this kingdom, humility reigns, doesn't it? Jesus said it over and over again. The meek will inherit the earth. The first will be last. The last will be first. The strong will be weak and the weak strong. You really want to see what true greatness is in the kingdom of heaven? Bring me a child. Because a child, like a slave, is the lowest social order in the household. The most humble of all people who live in the extended family. Bring me a child because that's greatness. God doesn't want the arrogant greatness that we consider in this world. It's absolutely backwards and upside down in the kingdom. It is a contrite heart. It is an obedient and a loving heart. 
that God wants, and that's what he found in this young girl. She goes on to say, not only is she humble, but she is obedient. Let it be to me according to your word. And that's why I drew out that, that no word is impossible with God. That's why I made that connection, because that's how she responds. Let it be according to your words. Let it be what you say I will follow. I accept wholeheartedly and completely, regardless of what the circumstances will be to me. If we have enough time, and I'm going to push it to the end of the after church, but if we have enough time, we will see those words. Now, how on earth do you translate those words to be one of the most abominable heresies that Roman Catholicism puts forward? And I'll talk about that in the after church. But it is a beautiful statement of Mary's obedience to God. Whatever the consequences are. And let me tell you something. Those consequences were tough. We don't think about it. I, I, I know this might be hard for the men to understand. But I think most of the women here can understand this. Imagine that you're a teenage girl living in the rural part of Israel in those days. Knowing that they stone adulteresses. That they don't ask questions. Now, by the time of Mary, that was a little bit laxer than it was. But the law says if you are caught in adultery, then you get stoned. There's nothing like getting pregnant when you're not married to be caught in adultery. And that's exactly what happened to Mary. So for the rest of her life, seriously, she will have a stigma. The rest of her life, people will laugh at her. Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit, (laughs) you want us to believe that? Well, praise God that the angel went to Joseph, her husband, and explained the same thing. Praise God that he, he told him this is a child of the Holy Spirit. But think about that. Joseph also accepted a stigma for the rest of his life. <laughs> He's the guy who couldn't wait. You know, they had a baby before they got married. In fact, there's evidence that the stigma even continued right on up to Jesus. Remember in the eighth chapter of John when the Jews were contending with him? And they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They lash out at him, most probably making a slur upon the the, um, unknown aspects of his own birth. But you see, Mary took that, and and, and this goes back to what I said earlier. There are consequences for belief. There are consequences for unbelief. The consequences of unbelief, well, let me tell you, Zechariah got off easy, and we talked about that, okay? So he spent nine months where he couldn't speak. That's not a terrible consequence because he was a righteous man. He was a good man. God loved him, and he loved God. But the consequences of utter unbelief. The consequences of dying in your sins. The consequences of rejecting the free gift of eternal life that God has manufactured for you at great expense to himself. The consequences of that are are, are horrible to even think about. But Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else did. And the reason he did that is because he didn't want you to go there. And you say, I don't believe in hell. Well, the fact that you don't believe in it doesn't wish it away. 
Because God says it without question in his word that there is such a place. But we're talking more than the, the negative aspects of unbelief. We're talking about what happens in belief. Okay, I told you earlier that there are consequences for belief. God loves those who believe. He loves those who are humble. He loves those with a contrite heart. He loves those who are obedient. He loves those who love them, loves him. And that builds up treasure in heaven. I mean, there are consequences for the lives that we lead. And if we are following according to what God has called us to do. But there's also consequences for that right now in the here and now. Because even though our citizenship is in heaven, Jesus made it clear, you live in the sewer. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Father, I have given them your word. And they will be hated because of that. Because they are not of this world. The world will hate them. And so the world hated Mary and it hated Jesus and destroyed him if they thought they could. And so there are consequences for belief, both good and bad. Well, I may visit that again in just a second, but let's go ahead and finish out the text. And the angel departed from her. I told you that angels usually come to earth for a task, a purpose, a mission, And when it's over, they don't go rummaging around and float around here on earth. They go back to heaven. And that seems to be the case, that they're sent with a specific task. And when the task is complete, they go back to heaven where they belong. Now, one thing that is not clear, and I'm not really sure why Luke adds this. It seems to sort of add a footnote. The one thing that we don't know here is when this overshadowing actually occurred. When did the overshadowing occur? Did it happen simultaneously with the words of the angel? Well, the fact that Luke makes this sort of stark statement and the angel departed sort of gives me the idea that no, it didn't, that it was immediately thereafter. Of course, that's pure conjecture. We don't know. What we do know is that it occurred. Now, let me back up from this real quickly and just briefly summarize Three points that we have seen in this passage. The first one is that there is a teenage girl who is being overshadowed by the Spirit of God, by the power of El Elyon, who creates in her womb a new life. Secondly, that it was miraculous, that it was supernatural in nature. That this wasn't like any other birth that has ever happened. And it was a mystery that we will never understand. The hypostatic union between God and man. And thirdly, when the girl was asked, was told this, she turned to the angel and she says, Let it be according to your word, which is his word. I will be obedient. I am your servant, not not Gabriel's, but God's servant. I am your slave voluntarily because I want to be. Those three points are what we have just seen in this passage. Did anybody see anything familiar in that? As I was writing those three summaries, real brief, I said, where have I heard this before? And then it all came together for me when I, 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 I... wrote the beginning, which was that creation story. And we see in the creation story a metaphor of salvation. And brothers and sisters, I know that Luke did not mean it this way. I'm not saying that Luke wrote it this way, but I see in here a metaphor for salvation. In fact, I see an overshadowing 
that occurs with each and every born-again Christian. Do you remember the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? Remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want anybody to see him. And he started out by saying, oh, you do such great works. Nobody could do that unless he had been sent by God. Remember what Jesus said to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless one is completely remade, unless there is a, a new heart that is created, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And you know what Nicodemus said? I mean, it's almost like taking Zechariah's answer and Mary's answer and putting them together. Because what he said in response, he said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Later on, he actually said this, How can these things be? That's exactly almost word for word what Mary said. And Jesus answered Nicodemus and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. There must be a brand new you, a new creation. That's what the overshadowing occurred. Now, of course, with Mary, it was physical, but with us, it is spiritual. John described it in the first chapter in his prologue when he says but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God that's the overshadowing folks that's what happens to a true believer a complete and total regeneration Paul put it in such beautiful language to the Corinthians when he said and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And brothers and sisters, that's what happened to me. I was overshadowed. And he came upon me and he took that old heart of stone that didn't know him and he took it out. And he gave me a heart of flesh, just like we read earlier from Ezekiel. God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Because you see, just like that unformed world, just like that empty womb, I was just as spiritually empty and just as spiritually lost, just as controlled by chaos and just as angry and hateful against God as I possibly could be. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. As Paul said, we all are. And Jesus is the one who regenerates us, who overshadows us, who makes us new creations. That's what he did to Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Remember that story? We studied it not too long ago. Where... Martha said to Jesus, you don't want to go in there. You don't want to take that out because he's the fourth day man. He's been in there four days. You remember that? There was a superstition among the Jews that when somebody died and you put them in the tomb, their spirit hung around for three days to see if they could possibly get back in. But on the fourth day, all was lost. 
On the fourth day, the decomposition of the body had gone to the place that there is no way to bring that body back. That there is a rotting corpse in that tomb and not a person. Well, that was the way my heart was. And when Jesus demonstratively said, Lazarus, come forth. He came forth from that. That is a bona fide miracle, brothers and sisters. Mary was overshadowed, and then God worked a miracle in her womb. We have been overshadowed, and God works the modern-day miracle when he takes your heart out and exchanges it for one who loves him, one who will live forever, one that has a place at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is what God has done for us. We like that part of it, don't we? That's the fun part. Let's, not, let's finish the story. We have three points here, right? Because when Mary found out what was going to happen to her, what did she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Brothers and sisters, we are staring radical discipleship right in the face. Humble, obedient servanthood. Jesus could not have put it more firmly, more clearly when he says, if you would follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Lose your identity. You are either mine or you are not. There's no middle ground here. In other words, you're either a doulos or a doule, a servant, a bond servant, or you're not. Brothers and sisters, that means, as James says, that there's obedience, there's humility, There's love, there's a desire to please, there's a desire for righteousness and holiness, that there's a desire to worship, that there is a desire to pour yourself into his word, that there is a desire for prayer, there is a desire to take the sacraments, there is a desire to bear fruit for the kingdom. And if you don't have that, my dear friend, you're not saved. And I know those are harsh words, and I know they're not very popular in this world. But the Holy Spirit of God, the power of El Elyon, does not descend upon a person, and there's no change. It doesn't happen. There is a change in the heart that has been overshadowed by God. Can you imagine, just for a moment, can you imagine what the church would be like if every single professed believer would follow what Mary just said here. Behold, I am your servant and I will serve you with everything that I ever have. So I leave you with those words. The words from a confused, troubled, but truly blessed and truly gifted teenage girl who has just found out that her life is going to be far different than she expected it to be. That she is going to be stigmatized and she's going to watch her son murdered on a cross. She leaves you with these words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will or your word. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I think we can all learn something from this girl. That's why it is so dangerous in these reform circles when we confront the Mariala tree of Roman Catholicism for us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because you have revealed in your word that there was a, an extended sense of discipleship, an extended sense of belief and trust and servanthood and um, humility. And we pray those for ourselves. We pray for faith because we know faith comes from you. We pray for humility and we pray for obedience that we might truly act out our love in that powerful and necessary way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.